Welcome to episode 237 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. In 2006, I founded a meetup group, Socializing for Justice, also known as SoJust. That grew to thousands of members and hosted hundreds of events over the next 11 years. We got so big that I ordered branded Bic pens to give out at our events with the bingo icebreaker sheets. Over the years, those SoJust pens spread across the world and started to show up in really random places. I once went to pay for gas and when the clerk pushed the drawer out for me to sign the receipt, a SoJust pen was sitting there and I was over 100 miles from home. That got me thinking about how cool it would be to do a documentary about the life of an ordinary pen. I never did figure out how to make that a reality, but I was reminded about this when I learned about a great idea this week. The idea was written about on a nonprofit fundraising company website. I heard about it from one of my former coaching clients because she wrote about it in her newsletter, a newsletter I encouraged her to start writing. I met that former client because she was referred by my mentor. And now you're going to benefit from these various connections that allow the idea to travel from a website I had never heard of to you. Ready to learn about this ridiculously simple and effective idea? Email your list, and instead of asking them to share your offer with everyone they know, or even with 10 colleagues, ask them to invite just one person to check out your work. The author of the original article, Madison Gonzalez, calls this the plus one method and says, quote, it's the principle behind the plus one invitation, end quote. There are so many contexts where this would work. Hosting a clubhouse room? Ask everyone to click the plus sign to invite just one friend to the conversation. Hosting a virtual networking event? Ask everyone to invite one person to attend the next one with them. Looking for referrals? Ask clients for one specific introduction rather than vaguely asking for referrals. Your challenge this week. Let's put this into action right now. You enjoy my podcast and these lessons and challenges at the beginning of each one, right? I have been told by quite a few people that my weekly newsletter is one of the ones they regularly open. I want you to think of one person who would appreciate my weekly email. Tell them to sign up for my weekly email and my podcast. You can have them sign up at nomorebadzoom.com or robbysamuels.com forward slash nine ways. And of course, you can always direct them to subscribe to my podcast wherever they like listening to shows. Now, don't you feel awesome? You should because you are. Before we dive into this week's interview, I wanted to let you know that I'm running a mastermind series where eight different participants sign up for a two-hour mastermind each month. I facilitate a discussion based on questions shared by that month's participants. This is a great way to explore new topics and meet new people or deepen connections with people you've already met. Here are some guidelines on who will get the most benefit from attending this mastermind. You are an entrepreneur who's been running your own business for at least two to three years. You're willing to put time and effort into trying new business strategies. You are coachable, meaning that you will accept feedback, even feedback you disagree with, with the understanding that it is meant to help you and at least consider it before shooting it down. You are collaborative, 
Each group session will involve giving support as well as getting support. You will be a participant in the process. I'm looking for team players. You thrive in a dynamic group environment and you're excited to get to know other participants. If you'd like to be considered for the guest list, email Robbie at RobbieSamuels.com and I'll send you additional info. If you want to join an ongoing mastermind instead of just dropping in once in a while, I'm going to have three-month and 10-month mastermind options available later this year and in 2022. Email me to let me know you want to be kept in the loop. Are you more interested in one-on-one coaching rather than a group experience? I have space for one more private client. I've had two sign up in the last two weeks. This is a good option if you're ready to commit to doing the work and know that having the right support will get you where you want to be. Let's chat. Schedule a chat with me by starting with an email to Robbie at RobbieSamuels.com. No more random tactics. Instead, you'll have a clear strategic action plan and a coach to keep you on track. Just the record, this is not for everybody. Six months is $15,000 US and 12 months is $25,000 US. Now, on to this week's interview. Today's guest brings a wealth of firsthand knowledge to growing tech firms using more than 30 years of experience as an entrepreneur, business leader, and angel investor. She played principal roles in pioneering several B2B technology firms. As co-founder of Spaceworks, an e-commerce software company, she facilitated its startup and growth to nearly $25 million in revenue. At America Online, she designed the PR program and investor roadshow for the IPO. At United Press International, she facilitated a turnaround strategy. And for LexisNexis, she was instrumental in the creation and successful launch of a new division. Since founding Best Marketing LLC in 2001, she's consulted with more than 90 early stage and growth stage tech companies on their go-to-market strategies. In 2018, she was appointed chair of the National Women's Business Council, a federal agency that advocates for female founders. She's immediate past board chair of the Dingman Center of Entrepreneurship at the University of Maryland. Please join me in welcoming Liz Sarah. Well, thank you so much, Robbie. I'm delighted to be with you today, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Excellent, Liz. Thanks for joining us from your home office in Washington, D.C. As you know, this is a show about building strong networks, and the context, therefore, is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership, and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? Leadership is about seizing an opportunity, whether it's a void in a marketplace, uh, a place where we work, a family, a community, and coming up with a solution to fill a need or solve a problem. And it never has to be in isolation. And typically, it's got to be something that resonates with the person that they feel excited and passionate about. And then they have the challenge to convince other people to follow them. And often that's very easily accomplished because a true leader has the charisma and the communication skills and the excitement about that idea or that product or solution to really get the audience, which are typically strangers, excited as well. Because to be a leader, you have to have followers. <laughs> very At a very basic level, that is true. Uh, but I really appreciate your saying that, that in some ways, that if they're not excited about it, they're not going to get others excited about it, that they have to sort of dare to go forward, you know, not knowing people are going to follow them and have that sort of, uh, I don't know, internal energy around it. And then as other other people kind of jump onto the idea, it becomes a groundswell almost. 
Um, but if they don't have that, you know, initial, it's, it sounds like there's a lot of like internal work in some ways, like before the leader even goes to everybody else. So it's really about having the commitment and the stick to because things don't happen overnight, typically. And if you have the conviction of your idea or your plan or your vision, then that's going to keep you going when things take longer than you expect because they always do. But it's really about that emotional connection to wanting to make something happen. All right. So now the big question is, Liz, when did you realize you had these skills? When did it start to pop up that you had some leadership potential? You know, I never really thought about it myself and I've never really considered myself a leader. When I look back on what I've done in my career, when I look back on my own personal life, I think I've always been someone that I consider a person who can get things done. So if you say, well, that's probably a critical component of of the definition of a leader, then okay, I will uh, exceed that. But I never really said, okay, I want to be a leader one day, so what do I have to do to become that? I think if we look at leaders, and I think this would be very interesting, and maybe someone's written a book about this. I'm the oldest of two siblings, and I think the oldest in a family has this proclivity unlike other siblings, because we were the first ones, you know, we, we would hobble into a room at age one and, you know, we'd get applause just for walking into the room because we were the first in the family. And so maybe that kind of experience in growing up conveys tremendous amount of confidence because you've never seen a leader, at least I never have, that didn't have unbelievable confidence not just in themselves, but in whatever that idea was that they're trying to communicate. All right. So what kind of kid were you then? I mean, you're, you're, you're the eldest of, th- of the three of you. Two, two of us. Two of you. Okay. Two of us. So, okay. Were we like on a playground? Were you the kid organizing kids yeah, to play? And a- Absolutely. It's like, okay, let's ride our bikes over here. Let's do this. Let's, let's put on a play. And all the other kids were like, oh, that sounds like a great idea. Let's do it. And I was probably older than most of the kids in the neighborhood just by one grade, but maybe one grade was all it took. They're like, okay, she's older, but this sounds like a really fun idea. Let's try it. And so, you know, those are the kinds of things when I look back, were just second nature to me. And so I think maybe one of the qualities of leadership is it just comes naturally. Did you run for office or do anything formal in grade school or, or high school? No, no, I didn't. Um, I was probably involved in as many extracurricular activities as there was because that's kind of who I am. I like to join things. I like to be involved in things. So I made it a point to seek out what the clubs were or what the activities were, all non-sports. So I'm not a sports participant. I'm more of a sports viewer. Um, but everything else that the undergraduate schools, the high schools had, um, I pretty much got involved and then not just got involved, but then became the, I don't know, the captain of the activity or the leader of it or the chair of it or whatever it is. So 
it just What's kind of fascinating all- about this, Liz, is that a moment ago we have you on record saying you didn't really think of yourself much of as a as a leader, and you didn't like seek to be a leader, but clearly others bestowed that on you, right? They saw in you this assuredness, this confidence, this like, why don't we go try this? And everyone's like, okay. Um, so, you know, you never really had to seek it because I think it was a, it, it was a core part of who you were growing up. And I'm, I'm guessing other, even like, not just your peers, but I imagine mentors, teachers would notice that as well. Did they try to push you in certain directions based on your potential? I think they did. Um, and I think a lot of that got manifested through the work assignments. So for example, we're in a class and we had to write a term paper on, you know, what, pick one of these five topics. And the teacher would invariably call me out and say, Liz, I want you to do topic number three. That's like the most difficult topic of the five. And so I was constantly being challenged to try hard and be pushed and not sit back and do the easy thing. And I think that is something that stuck with me. And not that I always seek out the hardest route to do something, believe me, because like all of us, we have so many things on our plate. It's how do I get this thing done in the most expedient way? But um, I think I was always a, uh, a striver and doing well was important. Getting good grades was important. And that, you know, that's been something that's always been with me um, throughout my career, that I'm responsible for whatever work that is bestowed on me, whether it's for a client or whether it's for myself. And I want it to really reflect the best that it could be. So I, I read your intro a moment ago, and you have this like stellar career history in technology firms. And when I was 20, uh, 1994, my dad read an article he shared with me about how I would have uh, four different careers between 20 and 40 years old, and that some of my careers didn't exist yet. And I have to tell you that it really set me up for success because like my mindset was about flexibility, transferable skills, you know, like I, I was open to that challenge. A lot of what you succeeded in did not exist when you were 12. <laughs> It, it didn't exist when I was doing it, to be honest with you. And to me, that's been the allure of technology for my entire career. I am very non-technical. And people that I work with, clients that I interact with, are probably scratching their head like, how is she in this field? You know, and I can barely get on and off Zoom without creating you know, a blow up on my laptop. But it's not the technology that excites me. It's the end result of what the technology can do that I'm really enthusiastic about. You know, how does it change the way we buy stuff? How does it change the way a company manufactures something? How does it change the way we interact with our friends? Um, To me, it's what are the end results of those innovations that change the way we live our life and do our work? that I'm really excited about. And that's why I love the technology from that point. So when you were heading into, you, you went to college, yes? Yes. Okay, so we, I never wanna make an assumption on that. So you went to college and did you have a clear sense when you left college, the field you wanted to go into? I did. So um, I went to undergraduate school studying business, studying broadcast journalism. 
And I went for my master's studying journalism. But at that point, I realized initially I wanted to be a journalist and work in broadcast media. But I realized that I really wasn't going to be excited about that, that I prefer to be, I guess, in a broadcast or in a communications role, but on the other side of the microphone. So on the corporate side, how do I help the company tell their story to the audiences that matter? So while I was in uh, working on my master's, I kind of migrated from the journalism to more of a public relations uh, role and business. And so my first job after school was in business in a a marketing and communications role. And it wasn't in tech, my very first job. And it wasn't until I read a book that came out in the early 80s called Megatrends. And the author outlined 10 different trends that were going to happen in the next 20 years that were going to change the way the world worked. And one of those 10 trends was technology. And I thought, wow, this is, this is the industry that I want to work in. I still want to do business stuff, but I want to be in this industry. And so I worked on getting a job, my first one in that field, which led to the next, the next, the next. And then 30 years later, I'm still in technology. And so that has been the only concerted thing that I've done. All of the other jobs along the way, I say, have been purely accidental. And I've either taken the plunge and said, all right, I will try this, or I've moved to something else and grasped the next you know, tech thing that presented itself. So you had uh, this very esteemed uh, you know, career history in all these different, we named four of them, where you had a huge impact, but then you, you had an itch to be an entrepreneur. And like, so, how did you think about that? Like what led to that decision? So many of those jobs were entrepreneurial in themselves. So with um, LexisNexis, we were a small team of eight or 10 of us that actually created a company inside that company. So today they call that like entrepreneurism. Well, those words didn't exist back then. We just went to work. And when we described what we were doing to our friends at the bar, you know, later that night, it was like, well, we're doing this entrepreneurial thing inside this guy. No, it was like, we're going to work and we're building this new thing that hopefully other companies will like. And so those words were not buzzwords that anybody was familiar with. We didn't like decide we want to be entrepreneurs because we didn't know what that meant. And that was really the case in so many of the companies that I worked in, you know, during that whole decade of the 80s. Because those companies and what we were doing broke completely new ground. At UPI, the, the global news agency that doesn't exist anymore, we, I, I was hired to figure out how do we sell real-time news, Liz, to corporate America? Because the company over its almost 100-year history wasn't successful or profitable in selling real-time news on the wire to radio, TV, and newspapers. So where's the money? Corporations. Liz, figure out how do we do that? And so we did. And so I did. It's like, okay, but then how do you convince someone, believe it or not, there was no one else doing this at the time. How do you convince a corporate executive who would get the Wall Street Journal tomorrow and read about what's going on in his industry and with his competitors that he needs to get that news today and in a different way, like on his work desktop computer. 
like it didn't exist before. So you have to paint a picture that made them not only buy into that, but say, wow, I have to have this because it will put me ahead of the competition if I know what's happening before that paper comes out in the morning. And so to me, the excitement was always, how do we figure out what the impact is going to be on somebody to make them want to have this and pay us money to have it? And so that what that is really what has, you know, kept me very excited about the changes and the new, you know, innovations and in technology over the last few decades. It sounds like nothing uh, boring or staid or normal or everyday about any of that. Like there's always something new, a new challenge. It sounds like you're very thriving. There really is. And, you know, in, in working with the clients that I work with today, I'm typically working with three or four or five companies at a time. And even though they may all be technology and they may all be business-oriented software applications, what I'm doing for them is very different from one to the next. They're all at different life cycle phases. They all have different challenges. They're all selling into different industries or job titles. And so each one of those things makes it very unique. And then, of course, there's the personality of the founders themselves which adds another layer of, you know, individuality and challenge and drama. I guess I like drama. I think so. You definitely don't thrive on, on the boring. I'd love for you to take us to the time period when you made the decision to, to leave the, the paid uh, work of a career and go into the unknown of the entrepreneurship world. So it's 2001. Did you have an entity before that or was this really the beginning of it? So uh, 2001 is when I started this uh, marketing agency focused on tech. And we had sold my software company, Spaceworks, then. And I was thinking, what will my next software startup be? And at the time, there were a number of articles that were written about what myself and my counterparts and and co-founders had done to get this company where it was. And I got some phone calls, you know, out of the blue from tech CEOs in the DC area where I live saying, hey, we've just been reading about you and I can't hire you to be our CEO because I'm still here, but we don't know what's wrong. You know, we can't make any sales. Maybe we should fire everybody and start over. How would you like to come and just work with me for a few months, consult with me, maybe help me out. And then, you know, you can go and do your next thing. So what was going to be three or four months of me just hanging out and helping a couple of guys do, you know, a few things has now turned into 20 years and almost 100 companies. And so clearly, I like this. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing it. I'd be doing something very different. But it was never anything that I said to myself, okay, I want to do this. It's just, it just happened along the way. And I think if most people think about stops along their career, you know, do we really ever plan every single next step? I don't think so. Well, I can definitely relate to this. Prior to the pandemic, I was best known for being a networking expert, teaching people how to network at conferences and helping organizers design more engaging conferences. The thing here is the word at We don't go to them anymore. We're not at conferences anymore. And so I started a virtual happy hour on March 13th. And I've done it every week since. And that morphed into a four-week program where I was training and certifying certified virtual event professionals 
which then turned into me being hired by companies to help them bring their events online. Wonderful. So like, like you said, like you, I didn't, it wasn't like in March I had a plan right. or in April I even had a plan. I just kept doing the next thing. Yeah. You couldn't, you couldn't imagine that that would even be a need 18 months ago. It, it wouldn't oh, right. exist. And so it's seizing the opportunity and saying, how can I fill this void or this gap with something that's going to be meaningful and worthwhile, make me excited, make me money and, you know, yeah. produce good results. Yeah, that's actually the message that I tell people uh, listening really take away. Because for me, it was about how do I show up and add value? Like, you know, how, like there's, there's got to be something that I, I've done that I can now do in service of others. You know, it wasn't a woe is me, what happened to my business? It was like, right. okay, here's this new reality. Yeah. And it sounds like you also, I mean, both of us, like the reputation that preceded us, right? Like that's why people seek you out. Um at that time. And that's why you continue to get sought out. It's like, you do good work, the, the referrals keep happening, right? So, uh, but now you you ended up doing more than just your work. Cause now I, I noticed at the end here, you know, chair of the National Women's Business Council, which by the way, the fact that you didn't think of yourself as a leader, <laughs> but you have this in your history is kind of kind of comical. But um, an immediate past board chair of the Dingman Center of Entrepreneurship in, at UMD. Um, I mean, these you you're clearly now ready to pass along what you've learned. Is this kind of where you are, like ready to like make sure that the knowledge? I mean, you've got thirty years of experience that you want to make sure it doesn't go away. Yeah, to me, that's very important in being involved in communities where entrepreneurship is still taking place. You need to foster it. And to your point about networking and mentoring, I would have loved to have mentors back in the early days of our software company in the 1990s, but there were no mentor networks. There were no incubators and accelerators that exist everywhere in major cities, you know, today with programs from experts, you know, how to do your business plan, here are the legal issues, here are the sales issues. We had to figure it out on our own. Some of us did, some of us didn't. You know, we all stumbled along the way, but ultimately we got enough right in order to be successful. Well, if we can help founders today avoid the mistakes that we had to make and just skip right to the good decisions that actually produce the results and the outcomes that you want, then we're going to have more potentially successful startups doing you know, important work. Because small businesses are where growth is in the, in the economy. It's where jobs are. And when I look at, um, in my role as chair of the National Women's Business Council, we are speaking on behalf of about 12 million women-owned businesses in the country. And we represent 42% of all small businesses. So that's pretty significant. And it's even more impactful when I look at the, the very first numbers when women business owners were counted. And it was in the early 1970s. And the census had put one question into the business survey that never existed, which was, are you a male-owned firm or are you a female-owned firm? And from that moment on, we were able to see how many women-owned companies are there in the country and what kind of a role do they have on the economy. So back then, we represented 4.2% 
of all small businesses. Fast forward to, you know, most recently last year, 42%. So that's great. But a number in that, that I talk a lot about that we have to help fix is the following. So of those 12 million or so women-owned businesses, 90% of them, 90%, almost 11 million, have no employees. It's just the femalepreneur, the solopreneur. So how do we help them get that first employee on board, take that risk, because it is a big financial one, you've got to pay that person every two weeks, and what are the things that we can do to provide the mentoring, the coaching, and, and the access to capital that will make that first step that much easier. And so I think that mentoring plays a very important role, not just for, for women entrepreneurs, but for all entrepreneurs, because it's scary and it's very high risk. And the people who are in that uh, are often open to the risk and trial and error, but they would also, like you, like to have some insight and insider knowledge and not just have to try, you know, whatever, see what sticks. So it's great to create these spaces, these incubators, um, these accelerators that so people can find each other. And it's interesting you're naming this, this very large subset, 11 million of the 12 million who don't have employees, because that's basically all the women I know who own their own business. I would think that nine out of 10 fall into that camp, like, or yeah more like nine and a half out of 10, probably. Yeah, yeah. you know, it, there's only a little over 5,000. It's actually like 5,100 women-owned businesses have a million dollars or more in revenue. Only 5,000 in the whole country. So how do, we, how do we help them get to 2 million, to 5 million, to 10 and 20? And then how do we help that 90% yeah. that don't have employees start to build because small businesses add great character and amenities to the places where we live. And many of us choose the neighborhoods that we choose because of what's there. The bakeries, the bookshops, the boutiques, those are the things that add the vibrancy to our neighborhoods. But for women to have more of a seat at the table on a more national or global level, they have to have companies that do more than have a local footprint. A bakery in your neighborhood may have the best pastries and best cakes, but is that going to be an international company one day? Probably not. But a company in a STEM-related industry, whether it's science or architecture or construction or manufacturing, very well could. So that's one of the issues that our council is working on to try to encourage more women that if you have an entrepreneurial aspiration, go outside of your comfort area. Yes, you like to cook and you're thinking, well, I'll open a restaurant because I like to cook or I like clothes, so I'll open a boutique. Well, you don't have to have like the domain knowledge of the field. I mean, look at me. I had a, two software companies and I have no idea how to do software programming, very thankfully. But other people, you know, one of my co-founders was the expert there. My second co-founder was the finance guy. Well, I was the business person. So every successful business needs people with skills in those areas that make a business a business. And so if you're interested in drones, you don't have to know how to build them, you know, get somebody else to do that. But why do you want that interest to become a successful company for yourself? 
Well, I was thinking about this book you read back in earlier, uh, Megatrends, and how, you know, what what these women and all entrepreneurs should be looking at are what what are the upcoming trends? Yeah. What are the the growing fields and emerging fields? Because there's less competition in those spaces. Um, I remember when cannabis became legal, like I had a lot of friends jump in, a lot of women, a lot of people of color jumped in uh, and they were, you know, not all of them stayed in. It was like all, you know, small businesses, there's a risk. But the ones that did have been able to carve out a, a nice space for themselves, a nice niche for themselves, because it was a new emerging market. And me, yeah. you know, I, I'm an openly trans guy. So that's like my my claim to fame for minority status. But I mean, the, for me to now have this virtual network, this virtual uh, event design space, I should call it, or like... Um, someone actually called me a, a industry uh, expert in the field of digital event design. And I thought, was there such a thing as digital event design? Like prior to you writing that sentence, <laughs> like <laughs> that was, was that a thing of last year? Um, so I think when we look for what's new, what's coming up and then how do we jump into those spaces? That's, that seems like part of the formula. There's a lot of um, articles in the traditional business press that talk about where are the jobs going to be in the next decade? And so I would encourage any young person who is either in college now or getting ready to start college or even uh, graduating from college to look at where is that going to be over the next 10 years and how, how can they position themselves to take advantage of those opportunities? When you look at some careers, and I look at the statistics of those graduates that are still unemployed, law degrees, for example. I read recently that 40% of all of last year's law graduates still don't have a job. So what does that say? There, there are too many people with law degrees and there aren't enough openings. So why would you want to do that to yourself? Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I think... I think, I think probably people, for our readers, for our listeners, I should say, uh, they should probably... It's probably they're the parent with a child who's in that age range. So go help them find those resources to get them on the right right path. Yeah. I actually was wondering if we could shift gears a little bit um, because you have like, I, I just can't even imagine the number of people that you probably know, or even more is the number of people who know you, like, because you have always, you know, put yourself in front of the room and talk to people and connect to people. So I'm curious, like, how do you nurture and sustain that growing network over these years? And, you know, it, what's really interesting is that you started your network back when Rolodex was the way, and we didn't have these virtual networks that we all can use to manage our life now. So I'm I'm curious, like, what kind of um, habits or philosophies or practices you have in place, to, not just for your inner circle, like you know you'll see them, but like for that second and third layer out, the people you see once a year at a conference or you worked with five years ago or maybe twenty years ago, like, but you like these people and they like you. Like, how do you make some sort of effort around those connections? So I think it's important to keep those connections going. But at the same time, you have to be realistic in how much time you have available to devote to it. And so what I tend to do is um, dedicate a certain amount of time and bandwidth to that activity. And once you know, the glass is full, then it has to go on pause. Otherwise, I would spend my entire working day and work week doing nothing but that. And that's not a good thing either. So I think it's really about budgeting time 
and then looking at what is going to be the most fruitful set of networking activities for me in the time that I can allot to it. I tend to um, be very specific um, in the approach that I take, because if I just sit back and wait for people to reach out to me on LinkedIn, there will be nothing else that I have time to do during the day. So I look at who is that person? Do I think I can help them? Can they help me? So it's, it's amazing that help has to go in both directions. It's not just a binary. It's not just a singular thing. It has to be binary. Yeah. Yeah. And like you and I got connected through Gary because, you know, I interviewed Gary and we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes to, to the, her show as well. But, you know, and I, at the end of the show said like, here's the kind of guests I have on my show. Do you have any ideas? And then she immediately got on her computer and started shooting off introductions. And it was great because that's part of it. It's like, she knew that it'd be a valuable connection for both of us. She knew it was the kind of guest I was looking for. She thought you might want to tell your story and that that's a way for, you know, for me to broaden my network. It's one of the main reasons I love this show is that I get to meet people I don't think I would ever cross paths with without this show. So you have a great career. <laughs> it is a good, it is, it is. It's, it's funny because my, my show isn't really as tied to my work as it used to be. My work was about networking, so it was very tied, but now it's about virtual event design. But ultimately, it's always about relationships, like engagement, right? So, so I, I think about it as it's the mediums that we have the, the ability to use in the moment. Like in the moment, we're not going to be in person. We're going to be online or we're going to be doing a podcast or we're going to be blogging or whatever, you know, I do video. So, but the overarching message is still the same. It's about connecting people. So I love that I have this platform to meet folks like you and beyond, like I, you mentioned earlier, you schedule time. Do you actually have blocks of time in your calendar every week, every month? You do. I do. I do. I, I set aside time every week. Um, and, and that time will vary based on other things going on that I will do certain email outreach or phone outreach. You know, I'm still a big proponent of using the telephone. I actually like to talk to people and not everything has to be on Zoom. I mean, we were using video conferencing you know, for the last 10 years. And I just, you know, I had to laugh that, you know, when the pandemic closed everything down, you know, every family was doing a weekly Zoom thing, including my own. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's just like chaos. But anyway, um, so, that for, so for me, that wasn't such a novelty. But if you think about, well, how do you stand out if you're doing networking in, in the climate that we're in today? It's, do things that are the opposite of what everybody else is doing. So if everybody's doing Zoom, pick up the phone and make a phone call. If everybody's doing email, get a piece of paper and actually write a note or a card and send that. You'd be amazed at, you know, that old school way of connecting, how that now is unique and sets you apart. And so it's always thinking about how can I differentiate myself in the way that I reach out and do my networking? Do you have a list of people that you look through on a regular basis or like, how do you decide, okay, I have half an hour on my calendar. Like, how do you decide who to reach out to in that half hour? 
So if it's a new outreach um, and I'm on a panel of a virtual conference, which actually is happening this Friday. So yesterday I had my calendar allotment of an hour to, you know, reach out to new women business owners or women presidents of women organizations that I had not met or talked to before. So I spent that time reaching out to every other woman on the same panel that I will be on to connect with them. And so just from yesterday, I've connected with three out of the five of them. And so, you know, that's to me, I succeeded in what I needed to do from that particular activity. And who knows, maybe something will come of it in six months or a year from now or not. But it's kind of being very directed in what we do rather than, you know, haphazard. So interesting because in some ways what you just described sounds so fundamental. Like you're on a panel, so you schedule time ahead of time to reach out to people on the like, and yet I imagine a lot of people overlook that. Um, They don't see the opportunity. And even if they see the opportunity, they haven't built in time in their calendar to make it happen. So because you have time in your calendar on a regular basis, you basically look to see what's coming up on your horizon that you should respond to thoughtfully as opposed to react to when it happens. Right. I would, yes, we all, we all have to juggle the dealing with the incoming requests or emails versus what is the agenda for ourselves that we need to accomplish. And so often I see executives, even those that I work with, running their day by what email requests are coming in. You know, this partner needs XYZ. This customer, you know, of theirs needs, you know, the following thing to happen. And so you end up spending your day fulfilling everybody else's needs and not your own. And so you've got to be able to do both and you've got to get your stuff done as well as the next person stuck on. Prior to the pandemic, were you the kind of person who hosted gatherings? Was that part of your your, your tool? Um, I wouldn't necessarily host them, but I would attend and I would, um, you know, make myself available to speak or to be on a panel or to have some kind of a role. I was thinking even like smaller gatherings, like dinner gatherings or... Salons. I love dinner gatherings. I'm always doing dinners. I always like doing dinners. I love to cook. And so any chance that I can. So I've done a lot of very small dinner gatherings this past year. Hopefully yeah. they will get larger as things change for the better. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. I mean, that's that I can't wait to go back to to gathering in person. I know we'll be here for a little while longer. So um this is one of my favorite questions as we wrap up. But if we were reconnecting a year from now, and I imagine we're going to stay in touch, but let's say it's a year from now and I say, what, you know, how has the year been? I, I want to know what are we going to be celebrating? What are, the, what are the successes that you're most looking forward to in the year ahead? Well, as far as my personal career goes, um, I'm always excited when uh, new clients uh, come to me for help in you know, solving whatever business challenge they have. So my hope is that there'll be some new ones there, ones that I don't even know exist today. On um, the challenge that we face with the Women's Business Council in helping women founders around the country, I'm hoping that we'll have some great recommendations that we make, which is part of our charter every year to make recommendations to Congress or the White House or other federal agencies on 
do this because it will help or stop doing this because it's slowing them down. So I'm, I'm very hopeful that we'll have uh, some, some great suggestions on what will make it easier for women to start businesses. Um, on my hobby front, uh, I run an opera company in DC. And I've been doing that for, I don't know, seven or eight years. And because of the pandemic, we've not had any performances last year, but I'm hoping that we can go back to doing that this year. And that we'll at least be able to have one that we can put on the books. So um, those are just three of my, my hopes for this year. Yeah, I can't wait to celebrate all of that with you. They sound great. And now I guess I, I'm left to wonder, do you actually sing opera or is this another area where you have a, a, a passion for a something that other people actually do. I have a passion for it. I cannot even carry a tune, Robbie, I'm sorry to say, but I just love all the aspects of opera. I mean, the plots, the music, the singing, the costumes, the sets, the whole thing. I, you know, to me, it's the drama of it. And in a lot of ways, it's like working with tech startups. It's a ton of drama. So I guess I just need all of that in my life. And it's about as opposite of tech as you can get. Yes. <laughs> But the through line here is that when you are passionate about something and know you can offer some value to help make it happen, you jump in without needing to know that you don't have to be like a full of the domain knowledge. It's just more, you know, you know how to run the thing yes. and other people will do the, do the thing. You can run yes. it. That's, yes. that's a really good attitude because I think a lot of people do hesitate and yet every single great idea needs a business person who understands the business part of it. And usually the entrepreneur who has the idea is not that person. <laughs> so, it, you know, they're full of passion for the idea. So it's critical. Everyone, I, I actually, I don't remember who it was, but I, I, someone came uh, to speak at a conference I was at. She was the a long time assistant to this major entrepreneur. Like he was well known globally and no one knows her name. And she'd been there with her 18 years. And she said, I don't ever want to be an entrepreneur. I don't want to be in charge of paying people. But she loved the spirit of being in that company yes. and being the person who ran things behind the scenes for him yeah. and connecting with everybody. She loved the whole business of it, but she's like, I have zero desire. It was actually, it was about the benefits of being second. That was what this, that talk was about. <laughs> the yeah. benefits of being number two, as I think yeah. as you always said, you know, that, you know, don't think you always want to be number one. She's like, no, no, it's great being number two. I sleep very well at night. <laughs> That's great. That's great. I mean, I hear from a lot of people as I'm out in the marketplace, startup founders aren't the role for everybody. It mm -hmm. takes a, a very unique personality to to do that and to enjoy doing that. Yeah. It's not for everybody. And that's okay because we can't have a world of all startups, you know, we need the IBMs and the Nabiscos and the, you know, the, the large global companies too. Yeah. So Liz, how can people find you and follow your work? So I'm on LinkedIn. So it's uh, Liz Sarah, and I would encourage anybody to connect with me because I do connect with everyone that, that would like to do that. I'm also on Twitter. It's at Liz Sarah PR. Yeah. And we will have both those links in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Liz, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that entry with Liz. Such a pleasure to speak with her and learn about her leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? 
something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 237. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as all the archived episodes. Reach out and let me know which are your favorite interviews. Also, if you're on Clubhouse, find me at Robbie Samuels and click on the bell in my profile so you're notified when I'm speaking in a room. If you enjoyed this episode with Liz, please share it with that one friend you know would love to hear it. And don't forget to subscribe for free yourself so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review in Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance. Look forward to connecting again next week. We'll be interviewing another talented professional who's achieved success in their field or industry. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.